This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA on this Thursday, June 30th. It is, of course, Report Day from the USDA. A little bit later on this morning, they will be releasing their quarterly grain stocks data and their final acreage data, final planted acreage data. And we'll be discussing that in detail on tomorrow's program with Arlen Suderman, Chief Economist at StoneX. Today, we are going to be talking about issues that impact agriculture outside of market pricing. In segment two, we're going to talk with Megan Quinn about PFAS contamination. This is a pollutant that has gathered a lot of headlines here over the past year. I don't know that much about it. We're going to learn about that with Megan Quinn. In segment three, we are going to talk the continuing issues on America's railroads. Max Fisher, the chief economist of the National Grain and Feed Association, will join us. Talk through just how have things been going on America's railroads. And hint, it's not great. Max will bring us up on to speed on the impact there. And in segment four, we're going to look ahead to later on this summer, Farm Progress Show 2022 kicks out. Very excited. AOA will be broadcasting from the Trelleborg booth at the Farm Progress Show. And at the end of today's episode, we're going to talk with Matt Youngman, the director of the show, and Jeff Miller, communications director at Trelleborg. So stick around, folks, before we get into all of that. However, wheat has been in the headlines over this past week. The FDA completed an evaluation of a new transgenic wheat variety called HB4. And it's moving forward. Joining us to talk about this is Steve Mercer. Steve is the Vice President of Communications at the U.S. Wheat Associates. And Steve, thanks for joining us here on AOA Today. Glad to be with you, Mike. Thank you. Let's talk about transgenic varieties in wheat. They're very, very common in the soy and corn space, widely used, much less so in wheat. Steve, what's the hesitation for using transgenic crops in the wheat sector? Well, Mike, I think there are several things. I mean, go back to the time when uh, uh, Roundup Ready wheat was developed. And, you know, the discussion there was around uh, this is a human food crop. And uh, U.S. Wheat Associates is the export market development organization. And one of our largest customers, Japan, uh, was the public was very much against uh, biotech wheat. Uh, transgenic wheat, if you will. And so that was one factor. There was another factor, pretty interesting, is that at the time, we were competing very heavily against the Canadian Wheat Board, which could set prices and uh, were very aggressively competing with us. And, you know, we were not sure, our organization were not sure if Canada would agree to uh, approve that type of wheat as well. So uh, our the leaders at that time voted not to support transgenic wheat. Now, things have changed. Uh, the tech providers backed away from that technology and looked at other uh, potential technologies. And uh, so now we have a HB4, which is a trait that is specific provides drought tolerance to wheat, which in the environment today is much more interesting. And uh, there's a, uh, it's being given serious consideration uh, here in the United States, but of course, but also around the world. So, you know, things have changed a little bit and uh, this, is, uh, this is an interesting development in the process. It is this company that developed it, BioSeries, based out of Argentina. I understand this consultation with the FDA that that led to their, their evaluation was voluntary. They were just exploring what this would look like in the U.S. And Steve, your conversations with export partners around the world, countries like Japan, are they more open to this kind of technology that's specifically for improving growing conditions? Well, you know, we don't know specifically. We have not started that conversation with them. Uh, and so I think that will happen in the, in the natural process of this going forward. Uh, it certainly uh, is, we're not in a situation where there is any of this wheat being grown in the United States. This was just a first um, uh, process by BioSeries uh, toward that potentially. We don't know for sure, but... Uh, you know, I think that 
we have to look at uh, the result of the prior situation really was our wheat industry, U.S. wheat industry, getting together and, and actually developing principles for commercialization of biotechnology crops. And, and specifically, that means that we, we do support the technology as long as it doesn't disrupt market, the marketplace. And uh, there are certain expectations that the wheat industry has of tech providers like BioSeries uh, to ensure that the, uh, the traits are safe for human consumption, but also to seek and get approval for import in uh, countries that represent at least 5% of the uh, wheat, total wheat exports out of the United States. So those countries, according to our principles, have to approve this before that can happen. So uh, certainly if they do, then uh, you know we suspect that that will that will move forward, but we're not at that point yet. We're not, and Steve, it seems like commercialization might still be a ways away for this particular variety. Uh, underneath the guidelines that USW and National Association of Wheat Growers have put together, what would be the next steps for BioSeries to push this conversation forward? Well, I think that they uh, need to uh, work with us and the industry to uh, help us understand their process. Uh, of course, it's a private uh, uh, commercial company, so uh, you know that's uh, it's entirely up to them. But they've been very, very cooperative along those lines so far. Uh, you know, in terms of uh, any commercialization in the United States, I mean, they have to they have to submit. Well, they have to do first. They have to do trials in the United States, and to our knowledge, they have not applied for that yet to USDA. Um, after trials are developed, uh, then they have to submit their data to uh, USDA, uh, and uh, then at that point, they will probably seek commercialization, and likely they would come to organizations like ours and the National Association of Wheat Growers uh, and other stakeholders like the. North American Millers Association and the Grain Foods Foundation, et cetera, to uh, put their story forward. Uh, and then uh, it would be up to our leadership to discuss uh, and determine whether or not we would support it. But of course, again, that would have to be, uh, they would have to seek approval for import uh, in specific countries that import U.S. wheat. All right. All of those things to come. And I should note the FDA hasn't approved HB4. They just completed an evaluation and have no further questions. So I assume that approval process would be another one in that step to gain uh, further support. Right, Steve? Yeah, I believe so. FDA uh, reviews the data and they essentially saying that they have no further questions regarding the safety of uh, this drought tolerant trait uh, for humans and animals just means that they don't need to do anything else at this point. All right. We'll continue to keep our eye on this as it develops. Thanks to Steve Mercer, the Vice President of Communications, the U.S. Wheat Associate. Steve, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, Mike. Thank you. And folks, stick around. We're going to talk PFAS contamination with Megan Quinn from Waste Dive when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we examine how the modern cooperative system solves today's biggest challenges. We'll be talking to CHS experts and farmers and ranchers just like you. And we'll learn how cooperatives apply innovation and technology to help co-op owners get more value every day. Join us around the table every Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Most of us like to be out in the sun. That's why sunscreen and other safety measures are key to protecting your skin from aging and cancer. The FDA recommends using a sunscreen with an SPF of 15 or higher. Also, look for broad spectrum on the label. That means both harmful ultraviolet A and B rays are blocked. 
Remember, SPF plus broad spectrum equal healthy fun in the sun. Visit www.fda.gov sunscreen for more information. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. We have some exciting news to share. The National Corn Growers Association, along with AOA, are kicking off an all-new program called The Monthly Grind. Tune in on Tuesday, July 12th for our big kickoff. I'll be broadcasting live from Corn Congress in Washington, D.C., and will share all of the details surrounding The Monthly Grind. Make sure to listen to AOA on Tuesday, July 12th. It's a show you don't want to miss. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, farm radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, folks, thanks for making AOA a part of your day here today. There's a new, not a new pollutant, but there is a pollutant that is garnering headlines. And recently, it has started to impact agriculture. Earlier this year, a dairy in New Mexico was ordered to euthanize 3,600 head of dairy cattle because they were contaminated with PFAS, a chemical that builds up forever. This developed in New Mexico last week. It was announced in the state of Maine that lawmakers have put $60 million into their new budget in order to help farmers combat PFAS contamination. This issue is spreading. EPA is taking a good look at it, and I think we are just beginning to hear conversations about PFAS develop here in the broad media. However, this is not news to folks who have been working in the waste space. PFAS and PFAS contamination is an issue they've been grappling with for some time. We're just now starting to notice it outside of that world. So in order to bring us up to speed on what PFAS is and how concerned we ought need to be, joining me today is Megan Quinn. She's a waste and recycling reporter at Waste Dive. Megan, thanks so much for talking with us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I want to start, I've called this PFAS, P-F-A-S here several times on the show because I can't pronounce the scientific name. Megan, what is this pollutant that we're talking about here today? Sure, and you know, um, for how much I write about it, I can't pronounce it either. Uh, PFAS is uh, it's a class of, you know, thousands of chemicals. Um, you can find them in, honestly, pretty much everything. A lot of, it's known for its nonstick properties. So, a lot of times PFAS shows up in things like rain gear, ski wax, cooking pans. And, um, you know, it's called a forever chemical because they're just really hard to destroy and they can build up in your body. So um, this is something that we're talking about a lot in the waste space because um, everything contains PFAS and it ends up in our landfills. Um, but it also ends up in, as you mentioned, uh, you know, agricultural aspects too. So it's, it's a big issue. It, it does. And even though it builds up in our bodies, it just, you know, that can be fine if it doesn't cause any ill effects. But I'm assuming that there are some health impacts as well here with PFAS. Is that the case? 
Sure. Yeah. So we're um, you see a lot of studies that you know PFAS appears in the blood of about 99% of humans, and it has been linked to things like cancer, developmental defects, other severe health issues. Um, and you know the EPA has said that it's going to be starting to do more research into just how much PFAS impacts communities and the environment, because a lot of this is still not well understood, um, though we do know that it does have uh, health risks. So, Megan, you know, I, I mentioned in the lead up here, this is new to me. I really got introduced to this concept after the Highland Dairy in New Mexico situation earlier this spring. But in your case, how, how long has PFAS been a contamination of concern for folks in the waste space? Yeah, so, um, you know, people who work in the waste industry, they know that, um, you know, because we know that PFAS is in things that we throw away, you know, it's in our food packaging, comes in contact with, you know, things that we use every day. Um, landfills know that that material ends up eventually in landfills. So um, there's not a lot of regulations that are currently directing the waste industry on what to do, but the EPA is starting to be a little bit more clear about what they want um, you know, landfills to do and how they want that managed. Because you know, modern landfills actually are really good at keeping bad stuff in the landfill and not having it leach into our communities, but um, there's still obvious concerns about, you know, what could happen and, and what they, they need to do to make it safer. So as this gets more attention, as there are more research dollars thrown at it, I imagine we're going to be ramping up cleanup treatment. Megan, what does that look like in the context of, of PFAS? Have we seen uh, the government or stakeholders clean up an infected site as of yet? Yeah, so um, I, most of what I know about is based on what happens at landfills and, and other like waste type facilities, uh, though there's cleanup in other types of spaces too, obviously. Um, the EPA has done um, a report on some of the most accepted methods for disposing of or destroying PFAS. Um, landfills are right now considered a, a way of um, disposing of a PFAS, so it doesn't make PFAS go away. There's a lot of interesting um, technology. There's thermal treatments that you can do, which is basically like uh, heating it up really hot to break the bonds. Basically anything you're trying to do to break the bonds of these PFAS chemicals, um, because the bonds that made them so strong and made these, these chemicals so good at, um, you know, these nonstick properties, um, they're slippery, they're hard to break apart. There's different types of technologies like a reverse osmosis technology. Um, you can absorb PFAS into carbon that kind of binds PFAS to these special resins and makes them easier to dispose of. Um, and then there are newer technologies. I was just at a conference talking about some of these newer technologies like using ultrasound, like sound waves to break these really stubborn bonds. But in a lot of cases, um, not all these technologies are to scale. A lot of them are expensive um, and a lot of them require, you know, going through a lot of regulatory um, steps. So it's, th there are ways to do it, but, you know, there's a lot of costs. And also, you know, in the case of my industry, the waste industry, um, you know, a lot of landfills are kind of waiting for more um, direction from the EPA or from their states on, you know, how to really go about this. That certainly makes sense. And I I'm wondering, as it is a forever chemical, once it's in there, it just keeps accumulating. Is, is PFAS still in use today? Is this a product that we could still find in nonstick applications out there in the world at Target, Walmart, and wherever? Yes, there are still some PFAS chemicals being used. There are two that have been phased out of production in the U.S., the PFOA chemical, and then one that sounds the same, PFOS, but it's called PFOS. So those two chemicals are getting phased out of production in the U.S. currently. A lot of what you're seeing of um, how we are reducing and phasing out these chemicals is um, at the state level, um, there are a lot of state policies that are banning PFAS in food packaging, for example. Washington just did that. Um, there are big federal contacts, like um, military bases that use firefighting foam that contains PFAS are shifting away from um, foam with those ingredients. Um, there's tons of state policies um, that are, you know, trying to phase these out, stop using them, because that really is the way that it seems like um, you know, there's only so much we can do about PFAS that is in our environment currently, but, you know, the, the first step is really to stop introducing it into our environment to begin with, so. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that certainly seems to be the case. And I understand EPA is taking a look at some additional regulatory uh, uh, rules, I guess. Um, yeah. When do you expect those to come out? Does the industry have a sense as to when EPA could provide more guidance on this issue? Sure, there are two big things that we're expecting the EPA to do um, in 2023. One is to implement regulations for uh, PFOS and PFOA, those two chemicals in drinking water. Um, and so what that does is basically um, provide sort of a regulatory sort of benchmark for um, PFOS in our drinking water. And in 2023, the EPA is also expect to designate PFOS as hazardous substances. Um, and that's, that's going to be really important because that's not currently something that the EPA has done. Um, and like I said before, what you're seeing is for drinking water, especially some states have their own um, laws about maximum contaminant levels and regulations and other screening actions like, you know, Ohio, Michigan, Minnesota, California, states like that. Um, but this is something that the EPA would be doing and formalizing, which will help sort of um, give guidance to how we can handle these chemicals moving forward. And the EPA also has a whole roadmap. They have this giant package of different things that they're going to be doing over the next few years to do more research, um, you know, and other regulatory actions are expected to also come from that. All right. So it really sounds like this conversation over PFAS, even though it's new to me, Megan, it sounds like we're going to be having this conversation for some time in, in the years ahead. Yeah, it's definitely, it's been a concern. It's something that affects all of us, unfortunately. Um, and yeah, something that, um, you know, you're seeing uh, more things happen to try to curb um, the introduction of PFAS, curb the, the spread of it, um, learn more about it, and, you know, uh, do what we can to keep it out of our environment. So yeah, this is definitely something that we'll be talking about for years to come. Megan, if we've got listeners who maybe are hearing about PFAS for the first time, they're curious about the information that is out there. I know you've covered this quite a bit. Where can our listeners go to, to read some of your writing and keep up with this uh, this very important issue? Sure. Um, so I write for the publication Waste Dive, um, and you can find us online at wastedive.com. And I also encourage you to check out the EPA's uh, PFAS roadmap, which kind of gets into a lot of these regulatory things that um, the EPA is trying to do as well. Well, thank you, Megan Quinn, reporter at Waste Dive. Thank you so much for joining us today and filling us in on what this topic really is. Well, thanks so much for having me. And folks, stick around. We're going to talk rail service disruptions with Max Fisher, the chief economist of the National Grain and Feed Association, when AOA returns right after this. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. We have some exciting news to share. The National Corn Growers Association, along with AOA, are kicking off an all-new program called The Monthly Grind. Tune in on Tuesday, July 12th for our big kickoff. I'll be broadcasting live from Corn Congress in Washington, D.C., and will share all of the details surrounding The Monthly Grind. Make sure to listen to AOA on Tuesday, July 12th. It's a show you don't want to miss. Chris Domine is a husband, father, an athlete, even an Iron Man. But 10 years ago, Chris's kidneys were failing. The doctor said, if you don't get a kidney transplant, you are going to die. Chris received a second chance, made possible by an organ donor. Your well-being changes from loss of hope to better times ahead. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, as we take a look here at the market trade working through our morning so far ahead of the USDA reports, we see the grain market, uh, corn and beans moderately lower with wheat 
a little bit more mixed in the uh, Kansas City and Chicago wheat with spring wheat down a little bit as well. Now again, today is the USDA quarterly report day and also the acreage report due out today. Little has changed this week across the crop markets after prices bottomed at the end of last week. Quarter wheat prices really have moved kind of sideways and choppy near their recent lows while the soybean complex has moved up off those lows, pulled higher by the strength in meal, which is the one crop market currently in an uptrend. Now, we're not seeing that today here in the bean market as uh, we are kind of pulling back a little bit ahead of the report. The seven-day U.S. precipitation forecast map is showing more widespread rain of an inch or more across the Corn Belt. How much rain actually falls over the three-day weekend will be critical to how trade opens up next week after the 4th of July. Now, corn, bean, and wheat prices, again, not moving much here ahead of the USDA numbers. Traders appear to be ready and waiting to digest today's quarterly USDA numbers and the acreage report as well. Looking for maybe more corn acres getting planted and maybe even a few more spring wheat acres on the, this report here. We'll be keeping our eyes on it closely. It's due out at 11 a.m. Central Time. Right now in the trade, corn for July seven and a half lower, seven sixty-two and three quarters. December down nine and a half, six forty-four and a quarter. July beans down thirteen, sixteen sixty-one and a quarter. November down eighteen and a half, fourteen fifty-nine and three quarters. September Chicago wheat four and a half lower, nine twenty-five and a half. September KC wheat up a half penny, nine ninety-one and three quarters. September spring wheat down ten and a quarter, ten eighteen and a quarter. Livestock trade is mostly mixed here as we work through our morning. This is AOA. I'm Jesse Allen. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice U.S. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, folks, I appreciate you joining us here on AOA today. We have been talking for the past six months on this program about the supply chain disruptions and the havoc that has wreaked for consumers and end users of agricultural products around the world. And of course, uh, for those of us here who might be living in town, ordering stuff online, if it gets stuck in a train or at a port for an extra two or three weeks, eh, it's not the end of the world. We just wait and click the tracking update button repeatedly to see where it is. However, if you're a feedlot and you're waiting on a shipment of corn, or if you are a dairy processor waiting on that shipment of milk, these things can be catastrophic when they are delayed. And the National Grain and Feed Association has been highlighting the challenges that this supply chain, particularly on the rail side, has caused for a lot of their end users. Joining me today to talk about it is Chief Economist at NGFA, Max Fisher. Max, thanks for joining us. Hey, very good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Let's talk first, Max, if you would give us an update about how things have gone. It's been about a month and a half since we last talked to you about rail service. Is it starting to improve at all for your members out there in the countryside? No, um, it's it's still in the doldrums. Um, a lot of challenges um, uh, for several months now, about four months. Uh, you know, we've been hearing that things will probably improve in four to six weeks, you know, just repeatedly hearing that, um, you know, for and I shouldn't say it's it's bad across the whole country, but particularly in the West right now, the Western half, things are really, uh, there's some serious challenges. So uh, we're now, you know, realizing that uh, this could stretch well into the fall harvest and cause some, some real problems. 
And Max, in your conversation with the railroads, as you're trying to find a solution here for your members who are struggling, what are the railroads saying? Is it labor? Is it technology? What's the backup here on the on the rails? It's been labor. Um, that's there's just not enough crews to handle the, the demand for all the trains. So um, you end up with railroads kind of being being forced more or less to prioritize what what moves and what doesn't. So um, Anyway, just a, a lot of pent-up demand that uh, can't can't be met at the time. No, it can't. And I understand that a lot of these carriers have been called into Washington, D.C. The Surface Transportation Board has really been looking over their shoulders. I understand here about a month or so ago, they asked four of these carriers for a plan to improve their service. Max, did they submit those plans? And it doesn't sound like service is improving much. Um, four of the carriers were asked to submit plans. Um, BNSF, Union Pacific, um, CSX, and NS. And uh, anyway, you know, they submitted their plans, and the board uh, wasn't very happy with the plans. Didn't feel like they were didn't contain enough detail and an adequate plan for how things were going to be restored. So they went back to their roads and asked them to uh, to try again, essentially, and resubmit. All right, so we're just waiting on them to get that resubmission in to see exactly how it is they're going to try to ameliorate this backlog? That's right, yeah. And in the meantime, we've got a couple other challenges. You know, uh, one, you know, the BNSF, you know, anyway, just a week ago they announced that uh, at least for shipments into California, which there's a, a lot of grain from the Midwest that moves into California, uh, they announced that in order to move that, you now have to apply for a permit. Otherwise, they'll just straight up embargo it, which means they just won't haul it. You know, it won't even be delayed. It just won't be hauled. So, um, so yeah, I just want to make sure I understand you there, Max. So the state, mm -hmm. the BNSF is saying, if you've got grain that you need to get shipped into California to an end user wherever, you have to apply for a permit, basically permission to ship it on the rail. That's right. Yeah, and. You know, some suspect it, you know, it's for the next month, but some suspect it has to deal with this July 4th, you know, holiday weekend. And, you know, a lot of a lot of people take off some time, including rail workers. And uh, anyway, they're just, some think they're trying to get ahead of uh, congestion that uh, too many trains, you know, headed towards California could cause on their network. So um, anyway, that, that could be going on. And then there's one other thing, uh, you know, the railroads and their uh, rail labor have been locked in uh, uh, negotiations on uh, new contracts um, for for quite a few years now, and anyway, it's finally reached the point where you know that there's there's a whole process. Uh, it's it's in statute how it works, but they've reached the point in that process now to where uh, things get kicked up, you know, to the White House to actually appoint like a mediation board to try to mediate between the two sides and. Um, if in the end, you know, if nothing can be reached, the uh, rail labor is actually allowed to uh, to essentially go on a lockout strike. So that that's the worst case scenario, and that would be really, really bad for the U.S. and its supply chain if that were to happen. Yeah, it certainly would. There would be some ripple effects that we would all notice if they were to walk off the job. And I'm curious, this Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, the BLET union that is threatening the strike, would this impact all Class 1 railroads across the country? All of them except for, I believe it's uh, Canadian Pacific. So of, of the seven class ones, I believe six are, are part of this contract negotiation, whereas Canadian Pacific uh, does their own negotiation separately. Now, Max, these contract negotiations, if you mentioned, they have been ongoing for some time, I think since really through the bulk of the pandemic. And it seems like the leverage just keeps getting pushed into the workers' hands. Do you have any sense as to where this uh, this strike might go from here? Or do we have a sense of when a strike might get called? Um, I don't. Um, I, I've heard, you know, I've actually, I guess the time frame that's been tossed around is this fall when it potentially could happen. So, but yeah, um, I can say it's right now with the supply chain is as tight as it is, you know, and, and the railroads actually needing to hire more, not less workers. Uh, yeah, one, one could read into that, that, uh, you know, it is probably <laughs> going to be a tough negotiation.
Yes, I think that's a very diplomatic way to put it. It will be a tough negotiation to be sure. Max, I'm curious, as you talk to your members, as they grapple particularly in the West with this lack of rail, with the lack of, I should say, reliability of service, how are they finding ways around it? With diesel at six bucks a gallon and more out on the West Coast, I can't imagine they're thrilled about truck trucking all of this feed and ag products. Yeah, you're right. Um, yeah, in the Midwest, you know, there are there, you know, it's expensive, but there are more trucking options available for shorter hauls. So maybe, you know, if you have a 500-mile haul, for example, that normally goes by rail, maybe, maybe you can truck it, you know, and still keep your plant open or whatever you're trying to do, your facility. Um, but as for these shipments into California, yeah, trucking's just not an option for a, a relatively lower-value commodities like, like grain. Um, you know, you can do higher value commodities like iPhones, for example, and trucking and probably be okay on your margins, but you can't do that for grain. So uh, for them, you know, they just ship it wherever it can get. And then well, actually a lot of competitors out in California um, are kind of swapping. They'll truck grain to and from each other to try to keep each other uh, alive. <laughs> Clever. If I've got a shipment coming from closer to your plant, I'll send that to you and you send yours to me and we'll we'll make it work that way in order to cut down on transport cost. You got it. And just to keep animals fed and facilities open, open, running. Yeah. Ma that's, to that's, that end, Max, have you heard from any of your members who have had to shut down or curtail operations because they just haven't had the inputs? Oh, yeah. There, there are lots. Yeah. Like uh, lots of lots of grain demand. Um has gone unmet and we just have less less ethanol less flour less soybean meal produced less soybean oil i mean less grain exported yeah there's i mean there, there, it's happened a lot it certainly adds up. We saw it was announced yesterday that ethanol production declined for a second straight week and inventories dropped their lowest level this year. So I, and I think I think the supply chain disruptions are starting to grow. Max, for those members who have had to cut back, maybe they've cut down production, maybe they've closed entirely. Are they hoping to get reopened as service returns to the rail or are some of them just hanging it up entirely? Oh, no, I wouldn't say I'm not aware of them hanging up entirely. Kind of what happens is they may have to shut down for like a day a week is is what will happen or you know it just depends if they if the corn if the shipments are too late then they that plant shuts down for a day and then the train arrives and they open back up so it, it's been that type of stuff that's been going on for the last four months or so gotcha on the legislative side of course we've got this strike coming the white house will likely be involved in that as it matures legislatively max is there any other any other things trending in dc that could help improve the situation on america's rails really just need to get more people hired um you know it's a tough where the railroads are in negotiations with their entire workforce so i, I almost i speculate that they feel like if they pay more to get people hired, then the existing employment base they have is going to want more money through the contract negotiation. So it's a catch-22, and uh, that leaves their customers, like the grain industry, in the lurch. It certainly does. Hopefully these things will get fixed sooner rather than later and help uh, preserve the margins for those folks out there trying to make a living here in agriculture. Max, before we let you go, NGFA always working hard on this issue. You've written a lot of articles about it. You've been keeping your, your finger on the pulse of what's happening in the supply chain. Where can folks go to read that and keep up to date with the work you're doing? Um, I'm going to say we, we have a newsletter, but unfortunately it is it is for our members of, of uh, NGFA. That's how we keep our doors open. <laughs> so uh, our, our members are tend to be uh, grain elevators. Uh, you know, anybody that uses grain basically is in our membership. So um, that's, anyway. Uh, yeah, I get Fantastic, that's folks. And you can you can learn more about that or explore becoming a member at NGFA.org. That is their website. Max Fisher, chief economist for that organization. Max, thanks for joining us here today on AOA. Okay, thank you. And folks, stay tuned. We're going to talk with Matt Youngman, the director of the Farm Progress Show, and Jeff Miller, the marketing communications advisor with Trelleborg, when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. 
54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... (laughs) Hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration. Retinitis pigmentosa. Usher syndrome and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We win. We 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 are, are the, the foundation, foundation fighting, fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. Would you know what to do in a poison emergency? Would you know whom to call? Well, the answer is poison help. 1-800-222-1222. Poison Help is a 24-7 government hotline staffed by poison experts. It's free to call and available in over 100 languages. Every second counts in a poison emergency. Don't waste it wondering who to call. Save Poison Help in your phone today. 1-800-222-1222. Corn is native to the American continents and was unknown to the rest of humanity until Columbus arrived in the New World in the 15th century. It took less than 100 years after Columbus's discovery for corn to be introduced to farmers in Asia, Africa, Europe, and the Pacific Islands. After wheat and rice, corn is the third most cultivated crop in the world. The four nations that purchase the most corn from the United States are Mexico and Colombia, who use it as a food ingredient, and Japan and South Korea, who buy it mainly for animal feed. Around one-third of the corn grown in the United States is eaten by livestock, another third is used in the production of ethanol fuel, and the rest is either consumed by humans, exported to other nations, or used industrially. Now that's sweet corn, that's the variety that most Americans grill or boil for cookouts or just eat straight out of a can with a spoon, accounts for just 1% of all corn grown in the United States. These Farm Facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. We have some exciting news to share. The National Corn Growers Association, along with AOA, are kicking off an all-new program called The Monthly Grind. Tune in on Tuesday, July 12th for a big kickoff. I'll be broadcasting live from Corn Congress in Washington, D.C., and will share all of the details surrounding The Monthly Grind. Make sure to listen to AOA on Tuesday, July 12th. It's a show you don't want to miss. Hi, I'm Secretary Tom Vilsack. In my 40 plus years of experience in the ag industry, I have seen firsthand the tremendous value and influence of the census of agriculture. A complete count of our farms, ranches, and the people who operate them that tells the story of U.S. agriculture. It highlights trends, needs, and the great impact agriculture has on every American as well as folks around the world. Ag census data also informs federal, state, and local decisions that will affect you and your operations for years to come. If you're an ag producer, no matter the size of your operation, urban or rural, and you did not receive the 2017 Census of Agriculture and did not receive other USDA surveys, you still have time to sign up to receive the 2022 Ag Census this fall. Every voice matters. To sign up or learn more, visit nas.usda.gov backslash ag census. Thank you.
You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, folks, welcome back. And of course, the trade right now is waiting word from the USDA on the total final planted acreage from this spring. The market is wondering just how much corn got in the ground across the Corn Belt. We'll be having those updates tomorrow with Arlen Suderman here on AOA. But I do know of some corn acres that for sure got planted in the ground. And those are the acres up in Boone, Iowa at the Farm Progress Show grounds. Joining me today to wrap up the show is Matt Youngman, the director of show at Farm progress. Matt, thanks for joining us today. How do the crops look up there in Boone? You know, ironically, I just got an email from one of our, our host farmers and everything there looks good. It's uh, it's overhead high and, you know, it didn't get in the ground until mid-May. We were all ready to go at the end of April, but Mother Nature had some different plans in central Iowa, but it got in the ground in mid-May and we're getting maximum heat units uh, in, in the 10-day forecast. So that's great news. We're getting caught up and looking forward to utilizing those acres for field demonstrations. That's right. It's going to be here before we know it. Farm Progress Show, August 30th, 31st, and September 1st. We're also joined in this segment by Jeff Miller. He's the Marketing Communications Advisor at Trelleborg. And Jeff, are you getting excited to get to Farm Progress Show this year? Uh, We are very excited to get to Farm Progress Show. Uh, It's been, what, four years since we've been there last? And I just can't wait to get back on site. It is going to be so exciting. And Matt, it is hard to believe it's been four years since a live show has happened at the Boone Grounds. What has changed on that show site? Will folks, uh, will it look different if it's been four years since uh, they last came up to Farm Progress? It, it certainly has. And, and most of that is driven by, you know, the changes in agriculture, the changes in companies who have merged together. The last time we were in Boone, there was a separate Bear and Monsanto exhibits. There were separate Corteva and Pioneer. Um, there, there's just been a lot of, of changes on that show site. You know, and and uh, outside of exhibitors moving around and making the exhibit field map look differently, we've had traffic routing improvements. We, we've gone from, from two lanes to three lanes on Highway 17 right there on the west side of the show site, so we're going to have better traffic access. Uh, the place is just getting better and better. And, and realistically, a four-year break has given a real nice break for the exhibit field. The grass looks beautiful. The parking lots look fantastic. Everything is well-rested after a four-year break and, and ready to have a, a great show. That's right. Ready for those crowds to trump down that grass once again. Jeff, from Trelleborg's perspective, it's been four years since you've been at the Farm Progress Show. What makes it worthwhile for you as a company to be there and to be talking to farmers in person? Oh, it's that's an easy one. Uh, it's all about being face-to-face with the customer. Uh, we thoroughly enjoy getting in front of uh, the farmers to really to find out what's on their mind and to be able to pass along some knowledge and education in the world of tires to them. It really comes down to just that personal interaction that we all have missed for the past few years. Yes, we certainly have. And folks, I'm very excited. We'll be broadcasting AOA live from the Trelleborg booth each day at the Farm Progress Show. So be sure to mark your calendars for 9 to 10. You can stop by and connect with us, meet us in person. And Jeff, as that is happening, of course, Trelleborg has a lot of other things going on. What else are you guys bringing to the show this year? Well, in the booth itself, we're uh, kind of really excited about changing um, how we're going to present at the show, uh, we're going to focus on educational topics and not just tire educational topics, but topics that are important to uh, the growers and the farmers and producers that you have come into the show, you know, such as we we want to have sessions on um, carbon sequest, oh boy, carbon markets, sequestration, uh, precision agriculture, you know, how to lower your input costs. And most importantly, soil health. I mean, Trelleborg is a firm believer that we take care of the environment. Uh, it will take care of us. So we want to be able to pass along every bit of knowledge that we can to help them along. 
Absolutely. And I know the Trelleborg Mitas team, one of the ways you can serve or care about the environment is reducing compaction, adding flotation there to that farm equipment as it's moving across the field. Jeff, I understand Mitas is going to have a bit of a flotation demonstration as well this year. We are. We're going to be back again this year um, with uh, the floating tractor in the retention pond that's, um, Matt, is that east of the show site? That is exactly right. East of east of Gates okay. two and three. Okay, so we are uh, again floating the tractor, swimming around the pond. And one of the questions we always get asked is, "Why are you doing that?" It uh, it's just such an extreme example of flotation. And by all means, we don't um, want anybody to be driving their tractor into a pond. Uh, it's just everything that you've ever been taught about driving a tractor and, and soft, muddy, and wet grounds, uh, you just don't do it, but we do, and it's a lot of fun, <laughs> and uh, ho hopefully everybody else will, will get a kick out of it. But it really, uh, when we want to start the conversation of the importance of flotation uh, when it comes to the world of, of soil compaction, like you had mentioned earlier, so it's just an extreme demonstration of what tires can do. That's right. And it is a demonstration, folks. Don't try this at home. Matt, of course, we got to get geared up. It can get registered today. Fill us in on the details. What's the website and uh, how should folks, what's the best way to get registered? Uh, best way to, to do everything is to go to farmprogressshow.com. We, you know, we have everything there and we'll be filling the content there as, as we're able to make new announcements and, and upcoming things to, to add to the content list for the show. But you can go there register and buy your tickets in advance so you've got quick entry into the show. Um, you can book your room. There's a link there to visit centraliowa.com. Still plenty of rooms within about 30 miles staying in Ankeny or Johnston um, and, and everything else. You can download the app uh, and, and follow along there and then also all of our social media channels too. Fantastic, folks. Check that out. Farmprogressshow.com is the website. Look them up on Facebook and on Twitter. Keep up to date with the information about Farm Progress. It will be here before we know it at the end of August. Our thanks to Matt Youngman and Jeff Miller. Really appreciate talking to you guys. Getting excited for FPS 2022. And folks, tune in tomorrow. We'll break down today's reports with our friend Arlen Suderman of Stonex. We'll see you then for more AOA. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. We have some exciting news to share. The National Corn Growers Association, along with AOA, are kicking off an all-new program called The Monthly Grind. Tune in on Tuesday, July 12th for a big kickoff. I'll be broadcasting live from Corn Congress in Washington, D.C., and will share all of the details surrounding the monthly grind. Make sure to listen to AOA on Tuesday, July 12th. It's a show you don't want to miss. When it comes to making plans, you are the best. What about those round trips, which are perfect on your way there and perfect on your way back? Or those meetings with friends, surprise parties, camps, birthdays. The same way you plan for the important moments, start planning to protect you and your loved ones from a natural disaster. Sign up for local weather and emergency alerts. Prepare an emergency kit and make a family communications plan. Get started at ready.gov plan. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council.